Welcome to episode two of Cube Cuddle, a podcast about Kubernetes and the people who build and use it. I'm your host, Rich Burroughs. My guest for this episode is Duffy Cooley from VMware. Duffy's one of the nicest people you'll meet in the Kubernetes community, and we had a really great discussion. Before we go to the interview, though, I want to take a minute and address the current health crisis that we're in. Duffy and I recorded this interview previously, and the news about COVID-19 has gotten a lot worse since then. I have a feeling the tone of this interview would be at least a little different if it happened today. A lot of us are feeling very scared and isolated, and community is more important now than ever. I've met a lot of really fantastic people through the Kubernetes community, including Duffy, and I want to make sure you folks listening all know that there's a Slack for the community at slack.k8.io. I'll link to that in the show notes. Another great community resource is TGIK, the weekly YouTube stream that Duffy and the folks at VMware do. It's fun and very informative. I'll link that in the show notes as well. Okay, with all of that said, I want to thank you for listening, and let's go now to the interview with Duffy. All right, I'm here with Duffy Cooley. Duffy, thanks a lot for joining me. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah. Um, so to start off with, let's talk a little bit about um, how you got into computing in the first place. Like, what was it that, that dragged you into all this? So for me, it was kind of an interesting journey. I didn't. Uh, so when I was in um, high school, I, I was a I was one of the kids who was kind of the the, um, the teacher's assistants in computer stuff because it really just kind of made sense to me pretty early on. Um, but my real love at that point was theater, interestingly enough. And so, like, I spent a, quite a bit of my time doing stagehand stuff and getting into and traveling around the country doing Renaissance fairs and doing all, all kinds of different things as it relates to theater and events and coordination and that sort of stuff. Um, Have we talked about this before? I was actually a theater major in college. Um, I, I did that stuff for years and did a little bit of bit, a little bit of stagehand stuff in college as well. So um, it's kind of funny. I've run into like several people who are in DevRel who have done that sort of stuff before. I think it really helps. I mean, I think, I think having that perspective where, because I, I think if you learn nothing else from theater, one of the things you learn is like how the, the sort of, that people are fascinating, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like you can learn so much, you know, just from like trying to figure out how to entertain them or how to, uh, or how to deal with the different egos or, or the different types of people that you run into on every, on an, in an everyday basis. And I think that that has really lent me a pretty good, uh, a pretty good place to start from when entering an ecosystem like the tech community. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think that, uh, for me, I feel like, uh, you know, part of being an actor is trying to understand that person, you know, that character that you're inhabiting. And I, I think that that, that is a, a sort of an entry point into empathy, you know, that, that, uh, understanding the other, that other people have different points of view and want different things than you do is, is a big part of it. I think. Turns out that that is actually an entry point into sympathy. Oh, Okay. Which is fascinating. Like I have a friend who's who's uh, studying um, child uh, childhood development and things like that, and she sent me straight on that recently, and it really blew my mind. Um, oh, but, the sympathy versus empathy thing. Yes, because sympathy is a thing that you can learn in which you can relate to others. Empathy is a thing that you feel in relation to others. Okay. Which is wild to me, right? Like I don't like this is almost. I mean, it totally makes sense when you think about it. But like, I was not prepared for that revelation. I don't think. <laughs> I uh, I probably have been misusing that word a lot. I don't know. Uh, um, and and what was it that drew you to Kubernetes itself? So really, I'm just like I, I've always liked um, systems in general. I started kind of my tech career in like a networking path, and so I got into like kind of a, a something orthogonal to distributed systems, and that you have all these like autonomous systems that have to work together to make things work. Um, I started doing that over like uh, satellite, and I, I worked as a network architect for a number of different uh, companies, and that I think really kind of drove me further into like just really wanting to understand how all the things work because it was such a great puzzle. You know, it's like a puzzle that's ever changing and constantly providing more uh, 
material to go and explore. You know, like it's like I don't think that there is. I love puzzles that continue to evolve in such a way that there is always more to more to learn because it's it's the thing that keeps me interested, right? Otherwise, I get bored and go do something else, <laughs> right? Like. <laughs> Well, then, then you pick the right space because there oh, yeah. is definitely <laughs> always more to learn with this stuff. Um, is there is there something specific about Kubernetes, though, as a tool that, like, attracted you to it, do you think, in the first place? I think, you know, for me, like, the, I guess the um, the defining moment. So I was already kind of working on Kubernetes. I had I had worked at a, um, I'd worked at Apple um, for a while, and we had developed our own Shared infrastructure model for um, for that company, and it was pretty it was pretty exciting, and I believe they're still working on that. But at the time, it was um, based on what we understood and in, in systems that we were already aware of as a group, and and emerging in the in the community outside of that was Kubernetes, and I yeah. was noticing that I see this API based technology sort of sort of starting to kind of crop up and 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 really it seems like the focus is in trying to really define what that interface will be in a restful api and that itself was really fascinating to me and i'm actually starting to at this point i start seeing like feedback from my customers of this shared infrastructure that we're building saying like look you know what you're all building is awesome i don't want to knock it but like have you looked at this api thing like it's really cool you know and i'm like Okay, all right, I get that, right? Like, I'm like in my mind, I'm like, okay, so, OpenStack, RESTful API. I'm like, I think I've seen this movie before, like AWS, RESTful API. Um, there might be something to this, you know, like. Yeah, so... I mean, uh, you know, I I think that APIs are pretty clearly the reason for the cloud success, right? Like, the, absolutely, yeah. You know, and and so it it makes a lot of sense to have a platform that that runs that way as well. And so the thing that so the thing that really like made it synced for me right like that that whole model was the thing that attracted me to kubernetes originally but the thing that really like knocked it out of the park for me was actually something that i heard brandon um phillips say uh, who was our cto at CoreOS, and he was he got on stage i can't remember what, what convention this was but he got on stage and he had a couple of different slides and the first slide said like here's how many people are logging on to the internet every day for the first time right and it's like some astronomical number and here's how many people we have in our industry Software engineers, including infrastructure engineers, people who do any part of that in the world, <laughs> and 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 it, and it made it really clear that we are like wildly outnumbered, you know. And then I, <laughs> right, and 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 I was like, oh my gosh, so you, it's you know, it's like one of those Einstein moments where you're like, you know, the thinking that got us here isn't the thinking that gets us to the next thing, right? Like, so that, yeah, you know, like, and so for me, it was like. Because Kubernetes is more at the application layer, right? That we're that we're talking about basically process isolation that's well orchestrated, that we can actually, you know, treat uh, treat these distributed systems as something that kind of collapses that model between infrastructure and and developers, so that we can kind of work together on the same problems and and it has something of an amplification effect there. Like that that was the killer feature for me. Like that was it, right? Like that there was this idea that we could actually think about it differently. We could actually have a group of 10 people supporting hundreds of people and, and have a single API with which we can express things that would be deployed, how those things are monitored, what to do when things go wrong, how to determine that things have gone wrong, one API. Yeah, I mean, in the old days, we all had to fight over that stuff, right? Like, yeah. like it wasn't, you know, encoded into the system. And so you had to, you know, figure out what was the spec for this new application and how does it do load balancing and how does it do all these other things that, that now you kind of get for free with the platform. And how many different APIs would you have to go visit if they were all APIs? How many systems would you have to go visit <laughs> to understand how a particular application is performing? Yeah. How would you instrument that system so that you would understand how it was performing? Yeah. Right. Like, and before we would have to like, I mean, literally, have to interface with multiple systems just to get a snapshot view of the world. Today we interface with one API to get that snapshot view. It's interesting to me that you mentioned the the people scaling issue too, because I feel like that is a big one. You know, the fact that we are outnumbered, like you said, and the systems are getting more complex and people are deploying more containers and more VMs than you used to. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's 
partly why SRE has become so successful because it also has that same kind of focus. It's like, what can we, you know, we don't want to add a new, you know, ops person every time we spin up a new service, right? How do we, how do we do this in a way that, you know, we can scale? I also really like the SRE model because it, um, because it introduces, it, I, I say sometimes that it like brings the science back to computer science, right? Like you're, mm -hmm. you're actually, <laughs> you are incentivized to, uh, to understand these systems a bit better. And you're, and you're provided tooling that enables you to do that stuff a little bit more uh, rationally, right? Like if you, like, you know, chaos engineering is kind of a, is, is sort of a methodology that I think it's, in my opinion, it's sort of spun off of SRE, right? Yeah. But, but that whole idea of like being able to say like, look, I want you, the developer, the person who really understands how this code works to come up with ways that it could break. And then we'll try them out, right? And that's okay. It's all right that it breaks, but we need we need we need people with like you know who understand the code to come up with these like what well, what happened? What would happen if this happened? Right? Like, yeah, <laughs> I I think that you know to me the the big value of chaos engineering is being able to being able to validate your assumptions about how the system is going to behave, right? You know, so so you you know in your planning you have redundancy and you you have these different patterns that you adopt and the question is do they really work the way that you think that they're going to work when when a failure really occurs sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i love that you know i love that i love that whole idea of like you know um of being able to bring that science to it right like develop a theory and test it and incentivize people that not only is this okay it should be a thing that is like i i, I want to make it you know, rewarded. I want you to be like lauded for the person who came up with this obscure theory that broke everything. Right. Like, yeah. That should be amazing. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that for me too, like one of the, when I first read the SRE book, um, from Google, the, one of the things that really struck me was the, um, the section on error budgets and, and mm -hmm. the idea that, um, you know, that it may not be worth it to add another nine, right? That, that it might cost you enough money to add another nine that, that it's just not even worth it to do. And, and I think that, um, that way of thinking sort of challenged some of the assumptions that were happening up to that time. I feel like people were in this mode. A lot of businesses were in, in this mode where they thought they needed to have five or six nines, you know, and that, you know, they, they needed to be up all the time. And, and taking a step back from that and, and thinking about what it is that you really need and what it is that you're, it's going to cost you, I think, is, is really valuable. Yeah, there's another pivot point that happened right around that same time. And I think it, uh, it's highlighted sort of in that, in that same context, which is that like we, we went from the idea of uh, sort of, um, we went from the idea of performance being measured by the ability to Put a lot of input and take a lot of output out of a single application we need that network to be the most fast thing it can be it needs to be able to handle jumbo frames <laughs> we need to be able to we need to have the most memory in the cpu and the fastest ones for this application to run on that server and maybe we'll have two or three of them right yeah and now like and now the, the kind of paradigm has shifted right now we're like we're going to run 100 of them if some of them fail they fail Right. Yeah. Like we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna approach this problem fundamentally differently. We're gonna think of performance not necessarily as the success or failure of a single instance, but the success or failure of a fleet. Right. Yeah. No. That's that's super super important. And um, I tell people the story sometimes of um, when I worked at uh, I used to work at WebMD in the, the late nineties. And so, um, one of the things I did when I was there is I, I would deploy the webmd.com site, you know, when a new version of the code was there. And this was in the period of time where the company was taking out Super Bowl ads. You know, we had a, a huge amount of traffic. It was one of the, the big destinations on the internet. And we had three servers. We had three web servers. I would deploy the code on one. I would like rotate it out, you know, bring, you know, and, and just roll through them all. And um, it's so, uh, things have just changed so much, you know, that was like 98 to 2000, you know, and, and you wouldn't think of serving a high traffic site like that nowadays. Nope. 
You wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Woof. But I mean, we've all been there. It's, it's all, it's all, you know, it's funny as I guess as much of these things have, as much as these things and models have changed, you know, at the same time, we still, we still see, you know, the same models persist, right? Like, yeah. Um, it's kind of fascinating, but like your uh, your Active Directory service that you're going to use LDAP to to be able to authenticate people into Kubernetes. Yeah. Has that model changed? Not really. You know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like... and and back then it wasn't like there wasn't redundancy, but I think that at that point in time, it was a lot more common to do the redundancy in the hardware. You know, yeah. so to have multiple motherboards, multiple CPUs, you know, mm. the, those kinds of things. Whereas you know nowadays. Um, it's it's a lot more I think about you know commodity hardware and and the horizontal scaling. Yeah, it's not a shelf of spares anymore. As you as you put, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. One of the other things that like came out of that time, which I think was interesting, and this actually I think speaks to containers a little bit too, right? Which is that like in that time when you were de when you were deploying that web app onto servers, right? Yeah, you had to you had to rationalize the state of like the package manager on each of those servers. You had to rationalize the, the different dependencies on libraries that dynamic code might have actually um, pulled in when yeah. deploying on this on this server, right? And I remember that being such a pain, especially as you get it. I mean, like three machines, we can make it work. We probably shouldn't, but we can, right? Like 10,000 machines? Hmm, nah. See, now, now my, <laughs> my reaction to that is, Wow, you worked at a place where they used package management, <laughs> right? Yeah, because these were tarballs that I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean that that that's I mean that's that's actually kind of like one of the forward ways to to solve that problem, right? Like, I mean, having everything that you can somehow contained into like, you know, one thing. But that's I mean, what's funny about that is that 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 very method, right? The ability of saying like, look, it's app, that application and all of its libraries are going to be in this path on the file system. We've taken that and moved it it's into a containers. container, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> hey, so um, how do you react when you hear people talk about Kubernetes being really complex, um, hard to get started with, those kinds of things? I think um, I think it is complex, and I think that some of that complexity is necessary. I really liked what Brian had to say on stage at KubeCon in San Diego this year, uh, where he was basically like, you know, talking about like. Um, Kubernetes kind of finding its rails moment. Um, but <clears throat> I think that, yes, it is complex. I do think, however, that like from an, I, I, I self-identify as an infrastructure person, right? Sure. But from an, as an infrastructure person, I'm like, but, you know, I think the, the cost is actually worth the benefit because I look at what we, we, you know, the flexibility of that platform, the fact that it has an API, an expressive API in front of it, the fact that it can, it doesn't necessarily have to be the interface for people to use the, or to to define what deployment models might look like, but yeah. that it provides enough tools that you and your operations team can actually either extend it to support different um, different ideas that that need to be expressed within Kubernetes, or or that it or that you can actually just you know figure out what your own DSL might look like for that and figure out how to make it real on Kubernetes, right? Like that, but that portability and like what it actually delivers for that complexity, I think, is worth the cost. Yeah, I, do, I. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I said, what I do wish, though, I do really wish that it were, I, I do wish that there were some simpler way to onboard into that. And I'm doing my best mm. to like try and improve that. You know, like through things like TGIK.io and talking about things and doing talks on stuff and just trying to get out there and like, you know, make it a little more approachable. But like, yeah, I, I do wish it were simpler to adopt. Yeah, I was going to actually ask you about TGIK because that is something that um, I've mentioned to people before. Um, when I was at my last job and was talking to my team, I, I pointed to that as as one of the best bits of like DevRel or developer advocacy that I've seen. Like, I think it's just so great the way that you all um, you explain things really well, but but it's also I like the fact that it's got such an informal feel to it, you know? It just feels kind of like a bunch of people hanging out and, and talking as opposed to, like, somebody who's, like, giving a webinar or a presentation yeah. or something like that, you know? And and I love that feel to it. Um, what what kinds of things do people, do people ask about a lot there? 
So, uh, like in the chat, which is interesting. So the way it's all set up, right? It's just my. It's like the speaker, a microphone, a camera, and then like you know a view of the desktop as you're working through these different things. And if you're um, Joe, if you're Joe, there's a beer there too. If you're Joe, there's a beer too. <laughs> I thought I think he's actually he might have officially switched to like you know energy drinks or something. Like I'm not sure, but um. But yeah, like, and so what's interesting about it is that like the chat gives you, there's a little bit of a radio delay, right? Like, so as I'm uh, working through material, I have to actually like take into account the fact that like, if I were to ask a question of the audience, there's going to be 10, 15 seconds before I get to see the responses. Oh, yeah. But, but what that means, though, is that like, as I'm working through different, um, as I'm working through a different presentation about things like this last week, I did cluster API for Docker and was, and was kind of taking through like how that works and like what we can do with it and kind of beating it up and doing an upgrade of a, of a cluster that has been deployed by it and all that kind of wild stuff. Yeah. And, um, and the questions were things like, well, what happens if this happens or what does this resource look like? Or how does, uh, you know, how do these things work? And what's neat about that is that I can, you know, I can take that and just go off on that tangent and say, okay, well, let's find out, right? Like, it's a neat thing. It's, it's a great question. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's one of the things that always appealed to me about it, you know, is that, you know, I started watching it, you know, early on when Joe, you know, was doing it uh, by himself. And um, I have to admit that I've sort of slacked a little bit on watching. Um, I didn't really, it wasn't a good time for me when I was at my last job, but, um, but one of the things I really liked is the fact that he would, you know, just grab a tool that he's never seen before, right? Yep. And and just explore it in the same way that uh, any other person would, and and uh, I really loved that. I felt like it it made it very approachable. This idea that you know I'm gonna like look at a new tool. Yeah, that's the thing that I, I I. What's also fascinating to me is how we each have different approaches to it, right? Sure. And I think that that, you know, like for some, de to some degree, this kind of brings us back to theater again, right? Like watching other people go through an experience is always informative. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> and so it's fascinating, but like, I remember Chris is like solid hacker. Chris will dig into the actual <laughs> code and understand what this function yep. does and like put in flags and like recompile the thing and just tear it apart, like completely. I, I, I think of myself more like a power user. I'm not going to push on the edges and understand as much as I can about the shape of the thing that I'm playing with. Yeah. But I'm not necessarily going to dig into the code and try and figure out, like, from the code perspective, like, okay, what actually happens when I put ones and zeros inside here and get them out over there? Like, yeah. And, and Joe is totally, like, you know, coming at this kind of kind of somewhere in that middle ground, right? Like, he, he goes, he sometimes will go deep and sometimes he will go, um, uh, you know, kind of high level and like, it really depends on, on what the different topics are, but, but you're right. It is, it is compelling to watch other people like go through stuff. This next episode should be really interesting. I'm going to be talking about, um, uh, development environments for Kubernetes, which is oh kind of, awesome. So that is not something I've heard people talk about a lot. Um, I mean, is that just basically a go environment or is there more to it than that? It's uh, it is a Go environment effectively, but we're going to be talking about like how it works and like how to set it up and like um, leveraging Kind to do Kubernetes development, because Kind gives you the ability to like stand up. Kind is an open source project that is on um, that is on kind.sigs.ks.io. You can go there and see the documentation for it. And what it does is effectively creates a Kubernetes cluster inside of inside of containers, and it gives you all of the flexibility of kubeadm. So you can create multiple nodes. You can configure them however you want. You can flip cube proxy to IPv6 or or turn it off completely or or, or turn it into IPvS mode, I meant to say. Mm -hmm. But like all the different like configurations that you can apply to Kubernetes, you can apply through that interface, which gives it an incredible flexibility, right? So in so in this example, like we might we might um you know stand up a cluster and like look for some known issue that was like raised in 116 or something. And then pull the fix for it and like look and see how that fix works and then validate the fix actually got things fixed and then you know by de by deploying that all locally in, in, inside of containers that's and super so, cool yeah it's 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 a super power, powerful tool and i really like that um it's actually portable too you can do this on windows mac or, or linux so it should be fun 
So uh, that will have probably already hap ha have happened by the time this episode airs, but I'll go ahead and, and link to that in the show notes. Um, mm -hmm. I actually was planning to talk to you about Kind because mm -hmm. uh, I owe you a thank you. You were super nice to me when I was at my last job. I was tweeting about the fact that I was playing around with Kind and you reached out to me and offered to hop on a call and you, you know, showed me some of the stuff that you had done with it in the past. And um, I just thought that was super rad because I didn't really know you like that well, you know, like like we've, uh, you know, met at KubeCon and, and talked to him on Twitter. But the fact that you like actually approached me and were like, hey, let me hop on a call with you and show you how this thing works. I thought that was super rad. Um, is that something that you do a lot, like in your role or? Yeah. I mean, for me, like, again, it's like about the people, right? So it's like for, for me, it's, um, I'm actually really grateful to be in a position where I can actually, um, get out there and try to help as much as I can. And so like a big part of that, um, it's definitely through TJK or through podcasts, but it's also a big part of it, just like trying to draw, help answer questions for things. And so what's neat about this is that like, um, by, I guess a little bit of history. So I, I was I was working at Heptio for a year, and then I joined VMware as part of the acquisition. What's fascinating about that is that at Heptio, my focus was out, outward facing, almost one hundred percent, right? The community or helping customers figure out how to how to how to spell Kubernetes or help it get deployed <laughs> or even how to use it, right? And so how to pronounce kubectl, right? Kubectl, cuddle, curdle, whatever. Um, but like that was been my, that was my focus at Coro, at CoreOS as well. Um, so between those two companies, like that was really what I, I was really enjoying and being a part of. And then when I went to VMware, I realized, well, now I have like two customer bases. I have a customer base that is external that has always been there, and then I have an internal customer base. Mm -hmm. I'm coming to VMware, an infrastructure shop, and helping them understand how to, uh, you know, rationalize this crazy Kubernetes thing, right? Through the eyes of VMware. Which has been fascinating, right? Like, yeah, that's rad. You are uh, now my second guest in a row that works at VMware and formerly oh. worked at CoreOS. So I had Stephen on last time. Oh, that's um, right. Uh, just want to point out to folks that uh, this is not sponsored by VMware. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> I, I will have people from some other companies on, but you, you both are people that I really uh, have enjoyed talking with in the community and wanted to have on for sure. Um, so, so back to Kind. So Kind is Kubernetes in Docker. So it's running a Kubernetes cluster, uh, you know, in Docker itself. So all the components of the cluster are containers that are running. Um, what what little, kind? Go ahead. It's a little bit more than that, which is okay. sneaky because what happens is that when you create a Kind cluster, you get a container per node, and then inside of that node, we run container D localized within that container. We have container D running inside of a container. Okay. That internal container D implementation is a thing that runs your pod. So it's turtles all the way down. It's turtles all the way down. <laughs> yeah. What what kinds of things have you used it for? Um I, I guess I should say that the thing that, you know, when I when you and I talked about it before, um, a few months ago, I had I had been to KubeCon in San Diego. I saw uh, Lee Capelli from WeWorks did a really fantastic demo uh, about uh, doing zero downtime deploys. Um, and um, he used a, a kind cluster for that. And that was one of the things that that really sort of sparked me up because it was a really complex demo. He was doing mm -hmm. a lot of pretty sophisticated stuff. And I was like, wow, you can do that with this thing that's just running on your laptop. That's super cool. Yeah. So I think that that is actually the draw for me, right? Like, so um, I think that, you know, obviously to explore or feel you have gained some understanding of a system as complex as Kubernetes, um, you need some set of tooling that basically makes it so that you can tear it apart and explore all the pieces locally yeah. without having to worry about um, tearing apart some production or even a development environment, right? Like it needs to be a place where you can kind of explore that infrastructure on your own time and come up with those crazy theories, like how, to, like what what happens when this happens or what happens when that happens, or you know, just really understanding uh, how the controller manager works or how the data flow or how the data model works, and like really getting into that stuff. I feel like. Having something like Kind, which makes it right there on my laptop. I mean, my laptop could die in a fire, according to the corporation, and nobody cares, right? But like, yeah. <laughs> whereas, like, if I try to do some of the exploration that I've done to my Kind clusters to like production environments, uh, I might get us talking to, you know, like. 
Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think that was one of the big appeals to me too. You know, um, I mean, in the old days, I used Vagrant a lot. You know, mm-hmm. and Vagrant oh, yeah. is still around and it's great. Don't get me wrong, but just you know, once I started playing around in cloud environments more, you know, I just started using it less. And um, but I think that um, there still is that case, you know, for having an actual local environment as opposed to like doing something in the cloud or you know on your actual real on-prem hardware. Yeah. So there's another open source project called GNS3. It's like Gopher Network Simulator or Global Network Simulator or what have you. And this tool is actually like you know kind of like was my first introduction to something similar to something like Kind, right? Mm-hmm. In that you could create an, a somewhat artificial topology. These would be instantiated within VMs and you could create like Cisco routers and Cisco switches and interconnect them and like, you know, model what it would look like to go from like, say, IGMP as a protocol to like BGP as a protocol and see if like, can you make the, can you make it work in a virtual environment before you try to make it work in a real environment? Right. Um, and that was like, that, that was, sort of a huge revelation for me. And so like that, that I think, I think kind holds a similar place in my, um, in my mind, you know, because of that. Yeah, that's super cool. So, so what kinds of things do you use it for? So I use it for, so um, I've used it for a number of demonstrations. I use it pretty frequently on uh, TGIK. I actually uh, did a great talk with um, another community member, Ian Coldwater, at Black Hat last year. Um, and it was funny because I was like, well, I'm gonna be at Black Hat presenting. So I wanna figure out how I can do this without n- any network connectivity at all. <laughs> like, for, for those for those of you who might not be familiar with it, Black Hat is one of the very well-known security conferences. Yeah, and, and so I've, I've figured out a way to do that, right? So with Kind, I can actually uh, preload the container images that I'm going to use. I can bring it all up locally. I can turn my wireless off and everything continues to work. Um, and so, and so I like got all that working. I went through the entire demonstration and I like, you know, scripted it and all just leveraged uh, a kind cluster underneath it. And that was, that was part of it. So mostly it's like, you know, demonstrations. I do a lot of demonstrations with it. I also do a lot of discovery work with it. So, um, if I want to understand a bit more about how, um, uh, cluster API, which is another one of those interesting technologies that's kind of come out in the ecosystem work and I want to like tear apart the pieces and see, you know, what happens when different things happen. It's a great tool for that. So talk to me about cluster API. I don't know a lot about it. So in Kubernetes, you have this idea of a deployment, right? And that deployment gives you the ability to say like, I want 10 of these things. They're going to look like this. This is the shape of the thing that I want. And I want 10 of them and a deployment, you know, fundamentally you're going to have pods, right? Right. And so, but but it has a lot, a lot of really interesting semantics, like the ability to self-heal. Like if one of those things gets deleted out from underneath me, I want a new one to be created. Yeah. Right. The ability to scale it up or scale it down. The ability to understand that when I make a configuration change, I want there to be a rolling update across the existing instances that move it toward the new configuration. But I can stop or pause or roll back, or um, not really roll back, but like make sure that I can go back to my previous configuration if things yeah. didn't work out. Well, that, I, I mean, we could take that same set of primitives and apply them to infrastructure in a way, right? Like, what if we could actually define a machine deployment that would look and feel, it would, it would make use of those same constructs, but give us the ability to manage um, machines in EC2 or in um, or in GCP or in Azure, right? <clears throat> what if we could actually have a machine deployment that had that had that same ability? Like we can scale it up, we can scale it down. Now, many of these environments already have that scaling piece figured out, right? Like auto scaling groups. It's not nothing sure. new. But because we have that, you know, again that singular API, we can do other things that maybe we can layer on top of that, which become interesting, right? So, like, what can we learn about that machine that we can express through metrics through that single API that give us the ability to understand is it in a really good working state? Is it running out of disk space? Is, you know, is it over, um, is there an IO uh, throttling issue happening on that node? Is it running against, um, like in EC2, for example, you only get so many IOPS per second, depending on the size of instance that you get. Are you hitting that measure? Like, can we actually measure that and express that through metrics that could be exposed through that cluster API model, giving us the ability to kind of like, get a little more clever about the way that we manage the lifecycle of machines than AWS necessarily does in auto scaling. 
and apply that logic across everything, like across all the different infrastructures, VMware, whatever your IaaS is. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I had heard about it, I think, more in the context of provisioning clusters, you know, um, and yeah. and uh, but that's less interesting, I think, than the idea of actually managing them once they exist. Yeah, I mean, and provisioning is a part of it too, right? So you have this, I, there uh, within Cluster API, there's a couple of different providers. Uh, you have a bootstrap provider, which handles the thing that gets you from a machine that you've created up to a Kubernetes node or a control plane node, a worker node or a control plane node. And that is typically um, kubeadm right now. So again, all of the flexibility of being able to manipulate flags or change things as things are being joined or um, initiated on the control plane, or you want to mess with the flags on the control plane, uh, on the controller manager, mess with the flags on the scheduler, what have you. You can express all of that through that configuration API that kubeadm already um, puts out there. Mm -hmm. So these two things together are like incredibly powerful. Like you can configure these Kubernetes clusters however you want. Now, obviously a lot of people don't know what they want, right? Like, you know, like I just want a Kubernetes cluster. And sure. so there is a rational set of defaults that, are, that, that we're using to deploy Kubernetes as well. But as you become more sophisticated, as you decide to associate the uh, authentication mechanism of your Kubernetes cluster with like, you know, one of the many OIDC providers out there, being able to configure that programmatically and manage the creation of Kubernetes clusters in such a way that they can be automatically configured or programmatically configured to interact with your authentication endpoint. That's huge, right? So for those who might not know, what is OIDC? Uh, it's an acronym. Oh, I, I don't necessarily expect you to have the acronym memorized, but it's it's what is it? It's Connect. And so it's basically a form, uh, it's a way to um, express like the authentication mechanism. Like if we, if we like look at authentication and authorization, just real quick, it's like a super high level. So authentication is your uh, is your ability to prove who you are in relation to some concept within the target system. So inside of Kubernetes, I need to be able to show that I am a user of the cluster. But then what what user what that user has access to that's authorization. So just the idea of authentication is kind of important because then I have some I have to have some way of like you know having a group of users all the users of my and my corporation have to like exist somewhere in some central repository that I can use to validate that when they use their credential, I can say, oh yeah, that's that's Duffy, right? Yeah. And so OADC is um, uh, some uh, a way to do this, right? It's basically a way to interact with some uh, third-party authentication system such that Kubernetes, for example, doesn't have to know who Duffy is. Right. Kubernetes just needs to be able to say, that person who is talking to the Kubernetes API is authenticated. They've got, they, they, you know, I asked that third-party system, that person has authenticated to that third-party system. We are trusting them, they are authenticated. Now that they're in the system, what can they do? That's RBAC within Kubernetes, the ability to define like, you can access these namespaces, you can create these, these shapes of deployments, you can do those things. Yeah, cool. Um, so you had mentioned your talk with Ian. I was going to ask you about that. Um, I, I watched actually the other version of it. I think you both did that same talk at the at the um, Container Security Day that happened at KubeCon. And uh, I ended up watching that recording of it. But there were some really interesting things that came up in that that I wanted to ask you about. Um, one thing that came up was uh, host path. Um, can you tell us about sort of how that's a treacherous thing? <laughs> Post a path. dangerous, yeah. a dangerous thing to use. Do you know? Uh, so you, I'm sure you've heard it said that, like in Linux, everything is a file, right? So you have the ability yeah. to say, like, you know, <clears throat> so you have the ability to interact with the proc file system or the sysfs or like different different file systems within the within the thing. For example, uh, like if you deploy Docker on uh, on a Linux host. It creates a an unauthenticated socket that is a part of like the Docker user uh, uh, associated with a Docker group, and as long as you're in that Docker group, then you can just interact with that file and use it as an unauthenticated API. You can create containers, you can delete them, you can see all of the containers that are created on that entire host. Yeah. So inside of Kubernetes, we have this idea of host path. The host path means that you can express a file system path of the underlying host as a mount point inside of a running container. 
so it's actually mounting the actual file system of the underlying compute node. Yeah, and so we can. So in that example, in the, in that demonstration, what I was showing was like, I'm actually going to create a pod, somewhat dynamically, right? I'm going to. I already know what the Docker group ID is, so I'm going to create a pod that is not running as root. I'm going to associate with that. I'm going to associate a user a user ID and a GID for that user inside that pod that is going to have access to the Docker group on the underlying host. I'm going to mount in that varlib Docker socket, and now I have unrestricted access to the underlying container runtime implementation inside of my container inside of the pod that I deployed on top of Kubernetes. I'll uh, I'll link to the talk, of course, in the show notes. People should definitely watch it. Um, yeah. Ian is uh, wild. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ian is another fantastic person in the community. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I uh, I was surprised by some of the things that I saw in that talk. Um, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is uh, privileged, privileged, true. I, I actually I have a couple of other friends who have actually been talking about this recently. Maya and. Um, and Frenchie, who are both community members, are out there talking about security and container security. Um, and, and, and you know, the privileged true one is is really wild. In fact, um, I think Jerome recently kind of retweeted this idea, which was he worked for Docker, like worked on that feature, and and he was talking about how like uh, this is privilege is a completely crazy flag, right? Because if you do <laughs> yeah. Docker run dash dash privileged, then what you're doing is you're basically making it so that inside of that container, you have access to the entire uh, file system. So all of the devices that are associated with that underlying host, like the actual NIC cards and the video cards and all of those other things that are actually wired into the underlying host, those are expressed into the dev file system that the that, the, that, is, run, that is now attached to that container. Yeah. Any precautions or safety or safety protocols that we put in place, like being able to filter out certain system calls or being able to filter out um, or being able to apply AppArmor or be able to apply SE Linux or the, these sorts of things which can restrict or constrain the types of things that you can do to the underlying system are automatically turned off when you turn on the privilege flag, <laughs> right? So when you're in privileged mode, like it is, it is exactly as it says, you have the ability to do anything. Like you could even from within your container at that point, you could just type reboot and it would reboot the node. Like it's like you have wow. full control. Like, <laughs> yeah, I saw that tweet that you're talking about, and he had mentioned that he wanted to call it like dash insecure, insecure or something like instead really of privilege. Like, yeah, is that is that only an issue with the Docker container runtime when you're using Kubernetes or? No, what's what's interesting is like, I, you know, I think all of them, all, all of the different container runtimes that I've played with, so Rocket, ContainerD, uh, Docker. Um, Played a little bit with Podman, like they all have that construct, um, and I think it's mainly. I mean, I don't know if there's ever like a really good reason to use privileged per se, but like at the same time, like um, I can see how there would be an argument, perhaps that like there are. We're going to come up with some corner case in which that is like sure, just what we need, right? What about um, the? the sort of security posture of Kubernetes is kind of like by default, if you just, you know, deploy a pretty vanilla cluster, how, how, how dangerous are things? So the biggest gap in the default deployment of Kubernetes is admission control, in my opinion. Um, and there are lots of things out there that are, that are trying to improve that, including, including folks that are working in the community to try and, try and rationalize what we're going to do with pod security policies. But let's talk a little bit about why this is such an important gap. Yeah. So inside of Kubernetes, it's just a, it's just a deployed Kubernetes. So this is Minikube, this is Kind, this is pretty, this is EKS, this is pretty much any like Kubernetes cluster with in the absence of mission control. You have the ability to create a pod that has privilege flag turned on. Yeah. You can you can mount host pads from the underlying uh, nodes that you can access. You can do all kinds of things that um, that uh, don't really lend toward a multi-user, a safe multi-user experience for systems like this, right? And the and the biggest protection, the biggest like guard you have against some of those behaviors is admission control, wherein the API server looks at the manifest that's coming in and determines through um, through evaluating it by some you know, whatever admission control mechanism you've identified 
whether to allow that pod to be created or not. Mm -hmm. And that's like the literally the bouncer at the front door is like the the best card that you have <laughs> against uh, against those sorts of things, right? And so, um, an inbuilt system inside of Kubernetes is called pod security policies, and the UX is hard to understand and it's difficult to work with. But like, but what it can do is actually pretty granular. Like you can actually express things like, you know, do I want to uh, allow, just blanket allow the privilege flag to be used by any authenticated user of the system? Or do I only want to allow pods with this particular label inside of this namespace to use that flag? Mm. Right? Uh, do I want to allow host path anywhere all the time? Or do I want to only allow specific paths on on the host to be expressed to pods in a specific namespace? And so if you have a policy set up that says I can't use the privileged flag and I try to use it when I start up a pod, it just won't start? You'll actually get back. I mean, so in pod security policies and in most of the admission controllers that I've seen, there are a few of them out there. Caverno, uh, OPA has a thing called Gatekeeper. There's tons of them out there now. Um, but in most of the admission controllers I've seen, what happens is you submit that pod spec or that deployment or what have you, and you get back a response saying, this is not allowed and here's why. And it would you know, try and actually give you some you know, breadcrumbs to follow and say like, it'll actually say privilege flag is not allowed or what have you. Yeah. But speaking of the UX, I mean, like if you create a deployment, so there's, there are different uh, things out there that try and catch this, right? So I think Caverno's one, I think, um, uh, Frenchy actually worked on one, which I can't think of the name of right now. But um, but these actually try to look for not just the pod object, but also like the deployment object. So when the deployment is submitted, then you get feedback on that deployment immediately. Whereas pod security policies are really focused on the pod, right? Gotcha. They only evaluate pods. And that means you can create the deployment and the deployment will create. And it will try to create the replica set and the replica set will create. And then the pod will try to create, and it'll be a nope. And you'll have to go look at that replica set to figure out where your failure happened. But it's not an immediately, it's not an immediate feedback loop. And that's gotcha. a different, yeah, it's a different UX than than some of the others that are out there. Caverno and OPA Gatekeeper, I think, do a little better there. Yeah. Are there useful Kubernetes-related tools that you want to mention that you think people might not be aware of? Wow. Hmm. I mean. That's like saying, so we have this huge candy store. <laughs> which ones? Which which ones are really the ones that jump out at you? That's a tough one. I think, I do think that um, more people should be aware of TGIK because it's a great way for us to introduce those things as they crop up. Yep. Um, I really like where Cluster API is going, and I really like like what we're trying to achieve with it. Or basically, we're trying to you know, move the control of infrastructure and the ability to instantiate Kubernetes clusters and the, and the ability to manage the lifecycle of them and to be able to customize the configuration of them um, programmatically. I think that's actually yeah. really super cool. Um, kind, obviously, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. It seems like uh, all the cool kids are fans of Kind. I think it's a, it's a popular one, and you know, for all the reasons we've already talked about, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So I I asked the Twitters um, if people had questions for you, and <laughs> I I got trolled a lot. <laughs> it's, it's it's hard to imagine. I think with the Kubernetes community that people would have trolled me really hard, but yeah. but it did happen. But we did actually get a few legit real questions for all you. Right. So uh, the first one is from. Uh, Marky Jackson 5, who you might know, um, Mark is a fantastic person um, in the community. Uh, his question was, in the ever-changing tech landscape with all the vast personalities, what is your secret to positivity? So I think, um, there's a, I think there's a couple parts to this, right? I think there's a part where you as a person are a positive person and whether or not you allow uh, Kind of like the the negativity, the general negativity of the world to uh, affect you, and also like how you present yourself. Like, do you, and, and so um, I'm going to speak to both of those two things. But like, okay, I think that like from the perspective of like, am I affected by the negative things that happen around me? Absolutely, I'm human, just like everybody else is, and I'm. I I think it's totally 
um, unreasonable to think that people could move through this world, especially at this time, and not and not be affected by that. Yeah, by, by the stuff that's happening. At the same time, I I firmly believe, like in uh, manifestation, right? I firmly believe that, like we have the ability to attract to ourselves, um, kind of what we want to see in the world, and the way that we do that is by expressing. So, I am really trying like almost every day to like make people laugh and to make people think about the fact that like in this crazy maelstrom of things that are happening to all of us you know if we can maintain a little bit of that um, positivity then maybe that's all it takes maybe it just takes a little bit more of that positivity for us to realize it's going to be okay we're going to get through it this too shall pass you know like yeah yeah i think that for me um one of the things I've always tried to do with social media is um, be somewhat transparent about myself, like not just tweet about whatever tech thing is happening that day, but, you know, talk about personal issues like, yeah. you know, mental health and things like that, you know, but, but at the same time, there's a, there's a level where it gets to oversharing, right. And where it gets to like be something that's going to bring people down. And so I've, I've always, my natural instinct is to try to like make jokes, you know, like mm -hmm. to talk about something real, but try to try to do it in a way that hopefully makes people laugh. Yeah. Make it approachable, you know, because, you know, perspective, uh, the other perspective I think is like, one of the most important, you know, if there's one thing I think that people could do more of, it's understand yeah. the perspective of others. Yeah. Right. And so, and so the way that uh, we make, the way that we attempt to make perspective more approachable is by making it funny, by, by taking the threat out of it, right? Like, here's my view of this particular thing. What's your view? I want to hear it, you know, and make it more approachable. And so that's one way of actually trying to like make that change happen to become, get people to open up to more perspectives that are happening around them. So all those people who trolled me were trying to open up my perspective. I think they were probably <laughs> trolling me. Like, you know, and I, and I, you know, like, but maybe it's me. Um, yeah, it, it could be. Um, we had uh, some other questions from Mark Manning, who is at anti-tree, um, and a couple, couple really good ones here. So he, he asked what reason, what are the reasons people are moving to Kubernetes? Um, the real reasons. So I think, um, what's interesting is I feel like part of the real reason is that it is, it is, you know, in that place in the hype cycle. So there's like, to be totally real, there's a lot of people out there that see Kubernetes in this particular part of the hype cycle. And they're like, okay, well, there must be something to it. Let's go play with that thing and figure out like, how do we, how do we get us some of those, some of that Kubernetes? Um, another reason, and I think kind of more, um, I, I, more, this might be a little bit more like what I want to believe rather than what is actually real, but, um, <laughs> like I look at things like, you know, the rise of SRE and the rise of DevOps and that, and those sorts of movements. And I real and I see like, again, kind of like bringing science to computer science yeah, and, and, and like the set of primitives and tools that you have within Kubernetes, I think are actually really compelling when you, when looking at those, at those tools. Yeah. And so I think that they like, you know, hopefully I want to believe that they like evaluate the tools, the tooling that is out there. And they say, you know what, if we're going to be doing, if we're going to be, if our job is to manage infrastructure for a company whose job it is to develop software. Yeah. Or to build distributed systems or to, or to, or to you know take apart or to make particular distributed systems scale better, right? Then I'm then what would make that easier for me is if I had a, a set of tooling that actually checked a bunch of these boxes and here's what they look like, right? Like, and I think that Kubernetes does a pretty good job of fitting into that puzzle. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Um, when I first heard about it, uh, I saw Kelsey Hightower speak back when he was still at CoreOS. And one of the things that, that leapt out to me right away was the service primitive and how it just encapsulated a lot of these things that were practices that we were already doing, you know, in mm -hmm. the industry. It didn't reinvent the wheel. You know, it took a lot of these patterns that people were using successfully and just kind of baked them into the platform itself. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's the other part about this that's awesome is that, like, because it is an open source project, Again, that perspective is amazing, right? Like the ability you know, when you when you think about this, this is the the uh, 
uh, collated perspective or aggregated perspective of people working on these sets of problems from all across the industry and bring and bringing that perspective to bear as it relates to what we what, how we define um, pods and how we define deployments and how we define services and how we define like all of that stuff as they've as they've matured over time right like the yeah. perspectives of all these different people trying to solve that same sort of problem the, the, the um it's not just vendors i mean like what we see at kubecon every year right we see people who are end users who have a problem and they're trying to solve that problem and they realize wow you know kubernetes is extensible we can actually extend kubernetes to understand our new our problem or our case and maybe build that into like a first class primitive right yeah um he had another question Mark did. Um, he says, uh, multi-tenancy in Kubernetes is a common need, but difficult. How do you recommend that operators approach that problem? It's a tough one. It really is. And I think I'd break it in. I would counsel an operator to think about multi-tenancy in two terms. Um, mm -hmm. the, ter the, the term of soft multi-tenancy and hard multi-tenancy. And to define those terms, I would say that soft multi-tenancy is um, different teams using the same infrastructure that have some level of trust between them. Okay. And hard multi-tenancy is like Pepsi and Coke. We don't put them on the same infrastructure. <laughs> and they'll figure out ways to beat each other up or what have you, you know? Yeah. Um, or Ford and Tesla might be the more recent example. Um, and so hard multi-tenancy in Kubernetes is, is, is incredibly difficult. And in reality, like the reason it's it's incredibly difficult is because like fundamentally the primitives that are expressed within Kubernetes are tools that allow you to build distributed systems that are trying to like figure out how to leverage service discovery to interact with one another. Right. How to handle? I mean, like we're we're building tools. Sure. To basically uh, they're counter to the whole idea of hard multi-tenancy. Yeah. Right? It's in the DNA of the product, not to do hard multi-tenancy. Right, we want to run a bunch of containers together on shared <laughs> like, infrastructure. Yeah, and so yeah. like, and so because of that, we have to like think about like, well, are we are we even asking the right question? Like, what is the right question if the right question isn't hard multi-tenancy? And I think that it comes down to like, if you're looking for that level of isolation, like the boundary is the cluster in my mind. Yeah. Right. And so, thinking about, but now we have a different problem. Now we have all these clusters. Right. We, How do we manage them? Yeah, and that's where. We're, and that's a problem that we've been working on at VMware for a while, and actually even before VMware, Haptio was working on it. Um, and there are a few other players out there in that space that are trying to solve that same problem. But I think that that's the right problem to solve. I think that you know making that so that it's easier, so you can programmatically spin up and manage the lifecycle of clusters, leveraging cluster API, so that you have some you know way of uh, declaratively configuring and managing some of the complexity of all of those clusters is important. Yeah, that's definitely the pattern that I've heard recommended the most is, you know, put those things that can't live together in different clusters. Yeah. Yeah. That's the right boundary. Yeah. <clears throat> so cool. Well, uh, I think that's actually all that I have for you, Duffy. This was super fun. I appreciate you coming on to talk with me. Um, I'm wondering if uh, besides TGIK, and I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes, is there anything else that you want to mention or, or uh, let folks know about? We have a pod, I have a, I'm part of a podcast as well. It's called The, the Podlets. The Podlets. Oh, that's right. Um, that's a fun one because like our, the goal of that podcast is not necessarily to express solutions to problems. It's to really just like understand the shape of a problem. Like we have like four or five people, four or five of us on the, on the talk and we'll like pick some particular, uh, you know, concept within the, the cloud native ecosystem and like really just try and understand the shape of that problem and like how we think about it. And we don't necessarily have to solve anything. We just really want to like bring some, uh, bring, bring our perspective to bear on it as it were, you know? So that's a fun yeah. one. Um, what else? I think, you know, I'm you're you're on the Twitters. I'm on the Twitters, yeah. You can catch me at Maui Lion everywhere. I'm on the Twitters. I'm also on the in the Kubernetes Slack. And so like I'm very interested in helping uh, solve hard problems or or even just discuss what's out there. So yeah. I always wondered where I always wondered where your Twitter handle came from. Oh, I grew up on Maui. Oh, okay. 
I lived there until I was, uh, I came back to Southern California for high school, but I was living there from the time I was about six until basically like the last year of middle school or something. And so I grew up there and then I also like big cats. So. <laughs> awesome. And, actually, and ironically, I originally got MauiLion.com as a domain, like back in like 98 or 99 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I bought it originally because nobody could spell Duffy. It's D-U-F-F-I-E. <laughs> And if, if I got like a star account, then I wouldn't have to matter anymore. Like, just yeah. send it to MauiLion.com. You got that, <laughs> right? We'll figure out the rest. Like, and so I still use that. So that's like my technique for like, whenever I get somebody asks me for an email address, I'll give them their company name at MauiLion.com or something that reminds me of them at MauiLion.com. And that way I know, I know where the mail came from. <laughs> that's awesome. Um... All right. Well, uh, thank you once again, Duffy. I really enjoyed chatting with you. And uh, thanks for all that you do for the Kubernetes community. My pleasure. I had a great time too. I'll see you out there. KubeCuddle was created and hosted by me, Rich Burroughs. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider telling a friend. It helps a lot. Big thanks to Emily Griffin, who designed the logo. You can find her at daybrighton.com. And thanks to Montplacer for our music. You can find more of his work at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Thanks a lot for listening. 